Thank you, Josh. We've really enjoyed this weekend. We enjoyed it when we came before and have been looking forward to our second visit. It's been excellent. Great to get to know some of you personally around meals and so on and uh, faces that are now becoming familiar. That's great. It's good to be in the family of God, isn't it? Well, I, I'm going to speak to you this morning about building the church and um, it's quite a straightforward word in many ways because uh, as, as I was been waiting on, on God over the last couple of months to know what to bring, I failed to bring the kind of word that was foundational to our kind of churches. I could have preached this 40 years ago in England. <laughs> and I, I, Oh, yes. And have recently felt God leading me to preach on these kind of things again. So it's from the book of Nehemiah. And I've called it Arise and Build. And uh, ba basically, we're, we'll, we'll, th this is not about one particular verse. It's, uh, I'm taking an overview of the book of Nehemiah, so I'll be dipping into it and bits of readings from it. But I'm going to start in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to start where I mean to end if we actually get there. <laughs> um, so the Ephesians chapter 6 passage is very familiar, I'm sure, to most of us. It's probably one of the, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. So I'm just going to read a few verses from that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then Paul then goes on to describe uh, the garments of a Roman soldier. I'm sure you know the passage. And uh, if we get there, um, I'll be referring to that. But I'm now going to go into the Old Testament, into the book of Nehemiah, and just a few verses to set the scene. And then I'll explain the background. So Nehemiah chapter 1 and verses 1 to 5. And I've called this Arise and Build. So this is the challenge for you. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So Nehemiah was a civil servant in the court of the king Artaxerxes in a, 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 an area beyond Israel, um, kind of Babylon, Persia, that sort of area. Um, I won't go into all the political changes that, that had gone on. But uh, anyway, Artaxerxes was the king and he, uh, he was, uh, he'd released Nehemiah, who was a Jew, to be his cupbearer. He found favour. And uh, these men came from Judah to see 
Nehemiah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament history, the book of Nehemiah is set in what we call the Restoration period. It was a time that was after the children of Israel had been in captivity, in exile for some 70 years. And that uh, at the beginning of that 70 years, uh, prophets like Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah prophesied that the children of Israel, because of their disobedience to God, were going to be taken into captivity. Um, we'll look at why that, that happened. So there have been 70 years of Jerusalem, which had been devastated by the Babylonians 70 years before. Walls had been broken down. The temple devastated. The place where God's glory had been manifested in the time of Solomon was now lying in ruins. And it looked outwardly as though God's plan that he'd given through all those early chapters of the Old Testament, was now devastated and lying in ruins. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, if you knew me well, you would know that I am not a very practical person. I'm reasonably good with my hands because I play the piano and various other musical instruments. But the concept of do-it-yourself or building work scares me silly. Now, when Rosie and I were first married and we bought our first house, I was determined to be a good husband and to be the handyman about the house. It didn't last very long. And one of the reasons why was we had a, 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 a cooker that was in the kitchen and the wire to the um, uh, electricity board was on the wall and I thought that looks unsightly. What I need to do is to make a hole in the wall, put the wire in and plaster over it like everybody else does in their house. So I checked what tools I needed. You needed a thing called a bolster, which is like a rather large chisel that you use for brickwork and a hammer. And so I chiseled away and I was very, very proud of this groove that I was making to get this wire in the wall when suddenly our doorbell was ringing, our next door neighbor was banging and he stormed in saying, what do you think you're doing? You've come through into our kitchen. I'd actually gone through into next door. That was the end of my brickwork building experience. Now, the analogy of the church being built is common in the New Testament. 
Okay, so not building with literal bricks, but building with people. In Acts chapter 2, the new converts were added to the church. And uh, you read about it in Acts 2. It says, the Lord added daily such as should be saved. Now, the Greek word there, added, atheto, is it's a, a building word. It's like a brick going into a wall that is placed in the right place. So these new converts were not just saved and that's it. No, they were built together. They were shaped to fit into this new community. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, it talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, the analogy here is of the temple. And in the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was the place where God manifested his glory. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word for the Holy of Holies, naios, was uh, the word that Paul uses here. He says, you're being built into the naios. So it's not just an external temple. We are being built into the place where God actually dwells. What a concept. What a concept. So we don't come into the Holy of Holies now. That's where we live. We enter by the new and living way, by the blood of Jesus. But we live in the presence of God. Now, the story of Nehemiah speaks of some important building principles. It's also a story with a prophetic relevance for the bigger picture of the church's place in God's purpose for seeing the kingdom reach the ends of the earth before Jesus returns. Now, it would be very easy for us to despair of the world in which we live. When we look at the political situations, I don't know what it's like in Sweden, but it's certainly true in our country with corruption, disillusionment, humanistic and woke philosophies, dominating political thinking, false sexual ideologies being normalized, traditional morality being turned upside down so that what used to be turned wrong or sinful it's not just acceptable, but normal. Adding to this the uncertainties of climate change, social breakdown, the threat of war, and the world refugee crisis, it can make us feel that the walls of our humanity are crumbling around us. Where will it all end? Will there be a disastrous nuclear holocaust? Will the world heat up to such a degree that life on planet Earth is no longer sustainable? Will sexual identity become so eroded that our humanity will morph into sexless creatures roaming the Earth like dehumanized zombies? 
living out of the script of a science fiction fantasy. The good news is the Bible tells a different story. God has a plan and a purpose. And he is building his church as an alternative to the despair and hopelessness of our world. Jesus did not just die for our personal salvation. He died to bring hope to the world. God so loved the world that he gave us his son. And one of the great declarations that Jesus made was, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But if the media is to be believed, the church has had its day. It's outdated, not in touch with the real world. Its ethics and morality are no longer relevant in a world where human philosophies rule. Education, the press, the arts, the media proclaim a gospel of personal liberation and a casting off of restraint. The church is finished. Not only is it finished, who in the church is challenging what's going on? Is there a voice that will stand against this tide of evil? Is there anybody who will prepare to be opposed and to suffer for the sake of righteousness and the truth of God's word? Now, those of us who are Christians can feel the pain of Nehemiah when he heard the words, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are devastated and destroyed by fire. He sat down and he wept and mourned for days. However, his mourning and fasting over the state of the ruins turned to fervent prayer and dynamic action. And that's what we're going to look at. So the prophetic relevance and message of this story for us today is that as the world around us is being destroyed by evil, let us, the people of God, catch the heart of Nehemiah. Now, here is a challenge. Nehemiah's passion and concern turned to action. Fervent prayer arises out of hearts that see vision with a realistic assessment of the situation. That is then turned into actions of faith that start to get the job done. So Nehemiah, after assessing the damage to the wall, called together everybody, people from all walks of life, the priests, nobles, officials, the rest, families. In other words, everyone. And he brings this challenge. He says, come, let us build. Now the response from the people was immediate. They said, we will arise and build. So the first thing that I want to look at is a responsive people who will work. 
And I hope this will challenge us. So, it says, they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, one of the neglected words, I believe, in the Christian life, you don't often hear it today, is the word consecration. You know, we're so into grace, and I'm totally into grace, grace, totally believe in grace. Of course I do. Uh, The whole thing about consecration, I think it has a throwback from the days when you would go to a weekend like this, and you would be hyped up, and then you would come forward and consecrate yourself. And it kept, you know, whatever conference you went to, you would hear about consecration. And so I guess there's a whole generation of leadership and preachers who said, well, that's not the right way to, way to go. You know, we're, we're in grace and that's all true. But consecration is an important aspect of our Christian life. Now, the joy of sins forgiven, the power and liberty of the Holy Spirit, the sweetness of our fellowship, the delight and liberty of praise and worship are stimulating factors in our Christian life. These are the things that bring us joy. If we are involved in these ministries, there can be a certain kudos, a sense of well-being, a sense of purpose, especially if they are visibly seen and demonstrated. But what about the secret, hidden ways of serving? The not-so-glamorous jobs, the ones where there is no one to say, well done. Now, if we are going to build, we need to be consecrated firstly to God. But not only to God, but to God's work. Now, there is a verse in the Psalms, Psalm 110, it says, your people will be willing in the day of your power. A willing consecrated, dedicated people are synonymous with the manifestation of God's power. Now, I'm not preaching a gospel of works. I'm saying it's a heart thing. Heart consecration and God's power go today, go together. Yep. Yes, consecration is totally giving yourself to God. It's like setting aside everything else, your top priority in your life, beyond your job, dare I say, beyond your family, beyond your ambitions, everything else, that you are absolutely dedicated to God. That then creates a willingness to serve Him. Okay. So, The day of the spiritual superstar, the celebrity worship leader, is over. God is looking for a willing people who will consecrate every aspect of their life to the service of God. There's a hymn that says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my intellect and use Take my voice and let me sing ever only for my King. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Work, family, silver, gold, talents, gifts, the whole life dedicated to serving God. Now, it's a consecration that overcomes discouragement, misunderstanding, that keeps relationships good, 
even when we may be misunderstood or we misunderstand others. It's a consecration that involves our time and, dare I say it, our money. It's a consecration that overcomes the taunts and criticisms of others who seek to undermine us. Now, immediately after the response to rise up and build, the opposition begins. And there are these two guys, a guy by the name of Sanballat and his crony, Tobias. And they begin mocking and despising and jeering and undermining. And they accused Nehemiah falsely of rebelling against the king. They mock the standard of the work by declaring that even if a fox jumped on the wall, it would fall down. Now, we have a strong enemy that will condemn, undermine, and accuse. But the consecrated, willing person will press through to victory. And this is what happened. The wall was built in 52 days. Incredible. Now, when I look at some of the building projects near where I live, how on earth did these people, without these great machines that they have today, how did they build that wall in 52 days? A consecrated people will get the job done. Now, I've actually stood on Nehemiah's wall. Okay, it's, It was unearthed in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, it, it's amazing. It was uh, on a trip to Israel and we stood on the wall. Now, although the wall was eventually destroyed by the Romans, in recent years it has been unearthed and the way the wall was constructed has confirmed the skill that went into it. It, it was wide enough for two chariots to pass. Now, that's incredible because most city walls were not that, that wide. So, 52 days, a dedicated, consecrated people get the job done. It was a remarkable piece of civil engineering carried out by inspired leadership and a consecrated people. Now, the story also illustrates another important New Testament principle of how the church should be built. <coughs> now, as the people had gone back after the 70 years of captivity, the first wave built, rebuilt the temple. So the temple was rebuilt by the time Nehemiah comes on the scene. But the city needed to be rendered safe, and this could only happen if the walls were going to be rebuilt. But even this was not enough. It was not just the physical temple and the physical walls. What God was after was that the quality of life the people were to enjoy was now going to be dependent on the principles that God had revealed to Moses. Now, this is a very important point. They were to be a holy people separate from the other nations. It wasn't just that they were to be a temple and, a, and the wall built, but they were to be a community. Now, the worship of the living God was at the heart of that community. Now, to remind the people of this, another leader appears on the scene. 
and his name is Ezra. Now, it's generally believed that Ezra actually wrote the book of Nehemiah and he wrote his own book as well. So Ezra appears in the narrative and he has figured in the early, earlier part of the story when the temple was rebuilt and Ezra was a teacher of the law and he inspired prophets like Haggai and Zechariah to get the temple built. So after now the walls have been built, the 52 days are up, Ezra is brought in and he compliments and reinforces the visionary ministry of Nehemiah to make sure not only that the temple is functioning properly and the walls are rebuilt, but that the people were living in obedience to God's word. So in Ephesians 2, where Paul is writing about the building of the church, he says that the church is to be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Prophetic and apostolic ministry go hand in hand to make sure the church is built on the right foundation. And the relationship between Ezra and Nehemiah is an Old Testament principle, uh, illustration of this principle. And our churches within New Frontiers, that is a value that we hold to very dearly. When Terry Virgo got a revelation about 40 years ago that churches were being built on a pastoral foundation, he realised that that was not biblical, that the church is to be built on an apostolic and prophetic foundation. Now, of course, pastors are important, and pastoral life of the church is important, and all the ministries are important. But when it comes to foundations, these ministries are important. And that's what makes God First distinctive in Sweden. It makes you distinctive. We're trying to do it the biblical way. Now, we now come to Nehemiah 8 and 9. The people gather to hear Ezra read the book of the law and explain it. They then realise that the whole reason they'd been 70 years in captivity and the walls were broken was because they had neglected God's word. And what happens is that there is a response as Ezra reads the word of reaping, of weeping and repentance. So my next heading, first of all, a willing people. Secondly, a people of the word. Now chapter 8 and verse 1 starts with Ezra reading the word. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. The response of the people was overwhelming as they realised the word of God had been neglected. There was first of all repentance and then an obedience to what the word was saying. And as the law was read, there was the realisation of its moral implications. They were to be holy. Now, the law that was read would have been the first five books of the Old Testament. But the particular book 
that was so important, which was a summing up of the rest of the rest of the law, was the book of Deuteronomy. Now I teach on the book of Deuteronomy quite a bit, and there are five key areas of behaviour that transfer into the New Testament. Now, as New Testament Christians, we don't live by the law. We live by grace. But God's moral law has not changed. Now, the summing up of God's law in the book of Deuteronomy will come under these five headings. First is the whole question of idolatry. They were not to turn to idols. They were to serve the living God. Now, there are modern idols. We don't need to pre preach on that now, but um, you've only got to watch 60,000 people at a football match and you see idolatry. Now, I like football, and I'm one of them, but it's not an idol. <laughs> um, but <laughs> So, I idolatry. The second is the occult. Well, we know as Christians we should never, obviously, turn to the occult. Sexual purity was also another theme that runs through the book of Deuteronomy. Family life, the way parents were to relate with children, children with parents, that's all in Deuteronomy. And social relationships, not exploiting each other, looking after strangers, looking after refugees and the socially deprived. It's all there. It's God's moral law for humanity given to the people of Israel. And those five things sum up the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy. Now, the second aspect of the law was ceremonial. So that was the moral. The second aspect was ceremonial, where through the priesthood and the sacrifices and the various feasts, the problem of sin was dealt with as people were reconciled to God through the blood sacrifices and the priesthood. And the various ceremonial feasts were reminders of their history and how God had blessed them. Now, in all those years before the exile, the people of God had moved away from the Deuter Deuteronomy laws and God's judgment was on them and they were taken into captivity. So this book, Nehemiah, is a restoration of what God originally intended. And it's a reminder to us of the centrality of God's Word for both our personal lives and church life. The Bible must be at the centre of everything we believe and do. Now, we're living in an era of information overload with all sorts of speculative theological ideas, prophetic revelations, and these can bombard the church. You've only got to play with your comp computer, go on Google, and you can find anything from the ten-horned beast to how churches should be built. It's all there. Now, again, this is why we need the church to be built on apostolic doctrine in tandem with prophetic ministry. We also need to remember that the Word of God has an intrinsic power in itself. It is the prime way that God speaks to us. So we read it, meditate on it, sing it, listen to preaching, read good commentaries. Everything we need for life is in the Word of God.
Now, chapter 9, as uh, um, Ezra keeps reading, continues with the reading of the law with the instruction. So he's read out about the moral law. He then turns to the ceremonial law. And there is an instruction to celebrate what is called the Feast of Booths. Now, here is another prophetic application, and that is that we are not only to be a people who are consecrated and willing to work and a people of the Word, but that we are also a people of the Spirit. Now, how do I get that out of Nehemiah? Well, the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles, was a celebration of the time the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and were living in tents as they travelled through the Promised Land. The enactment of that time was to be celebrated annually by the people living in tents for a week. But it would be celebrated with incredible joy, laughter, eating, drinking, dancing, because of their deliverance. So Nehemiah encourages the people to re-establish the celebration with the words, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So what was the prophetic significance of this feast and celebration? Well, we get the answer by turning over to the New Testament. And in John's Gospel and chapter 7, we read, about Jesus being at the festival of booths or tabernacles. And we read that Jesus interrupts this, what was a traditional element of the celebrations, because what used to happen on the last day, the great day of the feast, the high priest would carry a pot of water, a pitcher of water, from the pool of Siloam, and he'd walk up a steep path. I've walked up it. It's quite steep. He would walk up, go through the temple, uh, what was called the water gate, and he would take this water, and he would pour it out over the altar. But what would happen for this part of the celebration, the mums and dads and the kids, the families, they would line this pathway, hundreds of them, probably thousands of them would line it. But when that bit of the feast happened, it would be in total silence. So the high priest, it was a very ceremonial occasion. When suddenly, in the midst of it, this madman stands up and shouts at the top of his voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In other words, he's saying, what this high priest is enacting out, I am fulfilling. And John comments and he says that Jesus was talking about the Spirit who Jesus, who was not yet poured out because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, the glorification of Jesus, which is a massive subject, is the sum total of events between Palm Sunday and the Ascension. Everything that happened, we call that, theologically, the glorification of Christ, ending up with his Ascension and being received into heaven. 
Now, when Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he do? He poured out his spirit on the church. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is prophesying the era of the Spirit. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles that Nehemiah reminds the people that all the signs and wonders of the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, the feeding of everyone with the provision of food, the manifest presence of God in the pillar of fire and the cloud of glory, were because, and Nehemiah uses this expression, I love this, God has given them his good spirit to instruct them and not withhold his provision. It reminds us as new covenant believers that we are to build in the power of the spirit. We are born of the spirit. We're baptized in the spirit. We should be continually going on being filled with the spirit. So there's the crisis experiences of the Spirit and there are the ongoing daily experiences. The response to the word being read was to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's this incident in the life of Jesus that fulfills this story of Nehemiah prophetically. Inner people flooded with the Spirit, streams of living water, flowing out of us. I want to bring you a challenge. God first. Are you a trickle or are you a river? The evidence is that the river is coming into full flow. I've so loved being with you. So enjoyed your worship. So enjoyed spiritual gifts. That's what the river means. And this is prophetically what Nehemiah is talking about a church that is spirit-filled will be a worshipping church. And that is just what happened next in the story because all the singers and musicians, now that's a sermon in itself, hundreds of them got up on the wall with their multiplicity of instruments and one choir marched in one direction, another choir marched in the, in the other direction and the whole city heard the praises of the people of God. I want to challenge you, be personally filled with the Spirit and be corporately filled with the Spirit. So, you will know that you're a Spirit-filled church when you have meetings like you had this morning. Keep going, keep going. So this time next year, you will be a lot further on than you are now and more people here if you can fit them in. My final point is that there are a people who win. Okay, so we've had a consecrated people. We've had a people of the word. We've had a people of the spirit. Now a people who win. Now, although we are in the place in the story where the wall has been completed, we will find that there were still battles to be won. The rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall did not last. Nehemiah, after a period of being away, came back to find that the people had gone back to both complacency and compromise. 
Now, in many ways, Nehemiah is a very sad book because the next 400 years, for the next 400 years, the Bible is silent. And we find that the people of God had gone back to not obeying the Deuteronomic laws. And what had happened, they were overrun by various uh, other nations ending up with the Roman occupation. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Clearly, the Jewish nation had still not learned the lessons from Deuteronomy. And when Jesus came on the scene, Jerusalem and the land was occupied by Rome. Now, back in the early 80s, there was a lot of teaching about the restoration of the church. And it's been great sitting down with one or two of you and talking through some of those stories. There was a sense of excitement about what God doing a new thing. He was rebuilding the church, breaking out of denominational structures as we rediscovered worship, community, Ephesians 4 ministries, spiritual authority. There was a New Testament atmosphere about what we were building. Now, I was challenged recently by a very well-known prophet operating in our New Frontiers churches. And we were just having a conversation And he said that as he travels around the country, speaking in many of our churches, so many have settled and do not look any different from the churches we came out of in the late 70s to build the restored church. And I thought, that is a challenge. Now let me challenge you, God, first. Do not let that happen. Don't let it happen. There are battles to fight to see the church restored to what God originally intended. Now, my passage in Ephesians 6, and we have just about got there, (laughs) connects being a spirit-filled church with being a people who not only win their initial battles, but stay in the place of victory. In chapter 6, of Ephesians and verse 10, we get some significant Holy Spirit words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, power of his might. Words like strength, power, might are all Holy Spirit words. He is the spirit of power who imparts these qualities within us. So going back to our Nehemiah narrative, in chapter 9, the response of the people initially to the word was mourning and repentance. Now, although there is a place for that, if it doesn't turn into action, it just becomes sentimental wallowing for our past era. So we need to take the action that God himself takes. Now, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 59, writes about injustice, oppression, backsliding. He describes the broken walls of our world that I described at the beginning of this talk. And he says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Now, this is yet another graphic picture, as I've said, what I said uh, earlier. 
But Isaiah then declares, God roused himself. Now, even when there was no one to intercede, he acted. Now, if you read on in that chapter, it says that God put on his helmet of salvation and his own righteousness as a breastplate. Now, the armor of Ephesians 6 is the armor which God, as the ultimate warrior, wears. So the church is to be clothed in God's armor. It speaks of our position in Christ. While Isaiah says there was no one to intercede, the church is called to take on that intercessory role, to wrestle, to pray, to fight, to be aware of the combat. Paul talks about standing in the evil day. And there will be times when the battle will be intense. And sometimes those battles can be within the church. There is a battle for truth, sound doctrine, good relationships, worship, leadership and unity are all areas Satan and his hellish hordes will seek to attack. So the whole armour of God is not just a nice picture to teach kids in Sunday school. Okay, It talks about us being in Christ. It's the armour that God wears. So when in the heat of the battle, we stand in the whole armour of God. And Paul talks about wrestling. He talks about fighting. He talks about a shield. He talks about a sword. And this is how we win our battles. We see our position in Christ with the helmet of salvation on our head. Always be gospel-centered. Always be gospel-centered. Don't be kind of centered on the, prof- what the so-called prophetic and the prophetic thing or the pastoral thing or the theological training thing. All of those are important. But be gospel-centered. Always come back to the cross. Always come back to the resurrection. Always come back to the ascension and the glorification of Jesus. See our position in Christ with the helmet of salvation on our head. Be girded with the truth of God's word. Be a witness with our feet shod with the shoes of the gospel. Put up your shield of faith to quench the enemy's flaming darts. Live by the word, it is your sword. Keep praying and take responsibility for your life. Be like the people in Nehemiah's day and set your heart and actions to keep persevering. Don't give up. Now, if you're going to get the wall built, if you're going to build the church that God wants in this place, in God first, become a people who are consecrated and working. Be a people who work. Be a people of the word. Be a people of the spirit. Be a people who win. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit together have secured a victory over Satan and all his principalities and powers and demons. Everything he can muster to thwart God's purpose in the church and in us 
as we set about a great task. The victory of Jesus at the cross shows him defeating every principality and power. He grappled with them. He mastered them, stripping them of all the armor in which they trusted. He held them aloft in his mighty outstretched arms, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. And as a church, we see his hordes defeated because that's the armor we stand in. So, like Nehemiah, let's hear the call to arise and build the church that Jesus himself said he would build. A church that defeats the gates of hell and says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God first, I'm calling you, first of all, to consecrate yourselves. You're about a great work. You've got a great leadership team. You're being built on an apostolic and prophetic foundation. It is a church that Jesus is building. But you have a responsibility to go with it. Consecrated, filled with the Spirit. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray over you. And then we're just going to sing to conclude.